is happening, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Essential 11, brought to you by Acton Academy and Acton Academy Placer. Today's guest is a man by the name of Joe Quirk. Joe and I have some mutual friends that uh, made this introduction, and the dude has got a fascinating story. Uh, he's a, a very successful author, uh, but since and we talk about uh, we talk about the books, we talk about that journey, and that journey itself is uh, really is an inspiring story. Um, you're, you're very much going to like that. But then also, uh, since 2014, he's worked at uh, the Seasteading Institute. Uh, as an author and, and kind of what he calls a sea evangelist, uh, and he has written a book about kind of seasteading as this solution to uh, issues facing the globe. And we dive into that in this episode, and it was just absolutely fascinating, uh, and has given me something to uh, spend an inordinate amount of time exploring. So I think you guys are really going to dig this episode with Mr. Joe Quirk. We'll go three, two, one, and we are live with Mr. Joe Quirk, my friend. Dude, great to get to connect with you. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. Absolute pleasure. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what you are doing. And so we got introduced through mutual friend Gia Christopher. We got to give her a shout out because I know she listens. And and uh, you know, I said in my emails, one of my favorite humans and. You said, I think she's a lot of people's uh, favorite human, and, and I think I would have to agree, man. Great, great person. Yeah, she's a, she's a force for life. And when you're, it's like if you're in a bad mood and then you're in your, her presence, you feel like a better person, you go home wanting to be a better person. I think she's just one of those. She is absolutely one of those kinds of people. Yep. And, and her son is, uh, and of course, one of our students here at Acton Placer. And um, just it, same thing, Apple did not fall far from the tree. You know, he's just a, uh, He's a really, he's a really neat young man, and I was sharing with her yesterday. It was kind of funny that my oldest daughter now they are in the same studio here on campus, and um, you know she's she's not one to be boy crazy in the least, um, but she is very much uh, obviously taken by by Evan, and and is like you know uh, what a good what a good guy he is, and what a brave guy he is, and uh, so it's been neat to it's been neat to hear, man. It's kind of cool. So Evan's setting a good example. He, he absolutely is, man. Absolutely is. So I imagine, so we've got, just for anybody listening, so we have video off on this. And so I'm imagining right now you out in the middle of the water, um, you're just kind of floating. I know that's not the case, but I'm just, I'm so fascinated by all the work you are doing on this seasteading, uh, you know, with, with the Seasteading Institute and, uh, and, and watching some of your talks, like it is a fascinating concept that I'm I'm really frankly sad that not everybody knows about. But even before we get into that, do you mind kind of going into a, um, you know, maybe just a, a quick one minute version of you know sort of your origin story and and kind of um, your growing up real quick and kind of how you got to where you were and then I want to dive into that seasteading. Uh, okay, should I do the origin story yeah. first or yeah, should let's I tell do you? the let's do the origin story and then we'll jump into seasteading because I want to explore that a little bit. Origin story. So so my origin story is, is, is 375 rejection letters. Oh. So uh, I like by the, when I was 30, I, I sold a movie option. That movie was renewed. Uh, it was, I'm, I'm a best-selling author. I got a quarter million dollar advance. And people ask, man, how did you become a best-selling novelist? And, and the answer is 375 rejection letters. I love that. And, and this was after I was kicked out of law school. Uh, and just in crippling debt when I was 22. And it was, it was the, the extent of that failure, uh, one year out of college, 
um, that I felt like I was financially crippled and it freed me up to do what I wanted to do. So um, I, don't, I don't think you choose to be a writer. I think writing chooses you. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I was just a kid who thought about stories. I naturally wrote stories. I kept them a secret. Um, when I was a senior in high school, a novel just started growing in my brain. I didn't know it was a novel. I thought it was a story. I just started writing it. Um, and every day I'd go in and keep writing this story. And this is back in the days with the Apple IIe. Yeah. So 10 months later, I was like, man, this is really a long story. And it wasn't until I was printing it out and it took like four hours in those days. And we got up to like 375 pages that I realized that I had accidentally written a novel. So this thing was happening and I did everything I could to deny it. Um, Cause I didn't, how am I gonna just support myself as a writer? Yeah. I didn't know any writers, but my brain was doing it. Uh, people noticed I was good at arguing. Um, so I decided I'd go to law school because I was looking at getting out of college and driving the English truck. <laughs> that was yeah. an English major. Yeah, right. The truck I'd had during the summers. I, I drove a forklift and drove a truck during college to put myself through college. And with my English degree and my development of Western civilization minor, I didn't see what I would do. I didn't understand anything about life. So I went into law school. Uh, I was the youngest guy in my law school. I was humiliating myself. I quickly discovered I actually – I'm not good at arguing. I'm good at arguing for what I believe in. Mm. Um, and it's different. Yeah. If you're a lawyer, you're a hired hand. You're a hired gun. Right. Uh, and you're, you're, you're brought on to be a lawyer first and a human being second. And I was figuring that out early. Um, they kicked me out. And I discovered belatedly that I was uh, very deep in debt. The law school had doubled my college debt. And I couldn't conceive of how I could get a minimum wage job that's ever going to pay this back. Yeah. So I considered myself bankrupt and I said, well, might as well write that second novel I was thinking about. So as a clueless, clueless 23 year old before the days of the internet, I started trying to teach myself how to write books. So throughout my twenties, while everyone else was screwing around, um, I got up early and worked on novels and I wrote five novels during my twenties. Wow. Um, and I was sending them to publishers. I was sending them to magazines. I was, I was writing query letters. I was working minimum wage jobs. Uh, I accumulated 375 rejection letters. And I want to tell you about my nadir, which is the absolute bottom. Uh, I did, I, I'd never had any experience except grunt work. I, I'd never been paid to think. I'd only been paid to work physically. And I was living in St. Louis at the time. And, um, I was paying rent. And then when I wasn't in law school anymore, I didn't have any way to pay rent. And I spent two weeks looking for a job. Walk, I didn't have a car. I, didn't, I couldn't afford a bicycle. I walked up and down one side of the street and the other of major streets just applying for Anything. Um, jobs. And they all rejected me. And I remember getting up and I said, if, if it takes me 14 days to get paid, that means my check will come in from whatever job I get today, two weeks from now, which we'll get in just before rent is due. So I have to find a job today. Um, and the only place I hadn't tried yet was the cafeteria of the law school I had been kicked out of. No way. Yeah. And uh, so I went there and I filled out a job application and the guy talked to me. Uh, I noticed I was the only white person there. 
And um, he, the worst thing in the world happened, which is he said, how soon can you start? <laughs> and I said the worst thing I could think of, which is, uh, well, I, if I could start today. Right now. Really help now. <laughs> yeah. So um, I spent six weeks um, being on the other side of this lunch counter I used to go through. And I had to watch people I had been in school with, all of whom were older than me on their way to be a lawyer, look up and be like, holy shit. Oh, oh, excuse me. You. oh you're fine. You're fine. So oh. where am I going with all this? Oh. Where am I going with all this? Um, your origin story is in evolution. Um, your origin story is in lots of things being tried, especially when you're young, and repeated failure. Repeated, repeated, repeated failure. Uh, um, and the best, what I learned from that experience was everyone I was failing in front of in law school is now looking at me behind the counter. I was a French fry cook. Yep. Um, and the humiliation is total and complete. And I was about, you know, I just turned 23. Wow. And I'm like, this hurts so much. And then I was able to say, you know what? It's not that bad. It's not that goddamn bad. Oh. I, now, I, now I don't have any excuses to just devote myself to being a writer. I'm financially crippled. I'm humiliated. Now I have a job. So uh, six weeks, you know, one more anecdote. Uh, when I went to pick up my check, uh, the dude who handed me the check, he, looked, he, he did something inappropriate, which he looked at it. And he handed it to me and he said, you must live in a mailbox. I don't know how you live on that. Oh. Oh. This is a guy that worked in the cafeteria. Joe, there's. I've never told this story before. This so I mean I, I'm I'm sitting back right now and I'm just listening and I'm writing and I didn't grab a piece of paper but I'm writing so many th I'm writing on my hand because um, that's just what I do but I'm sitting here listening to this and there is so many now this is the first time you and I have communicated back and forth via email this is the first time we're getting to to chat we have a number not just Gia we have a number of mutual friends and uh, contacts and acquaintances so you know I already knew we we were on the same page in a lot of different ways. But as I'm sitting here listening to this, I'm getting so fired up right now. You're talking about getting crippled, financially crippled, and going, well, but now I'm free, right? I'm, I'm free. financially crippled, so now I'm free. It is only at the bottom when now you are free to do anything, right? It's like that old Fight Club adage, which again, you're talking one of my favorite books, favorite movies of all time, but talking about once you hit rock bottom and you absolutely have nothing, now you are free to do anything. You are literally going through your experience in that. You're talking about the understanding that you're, you're going through this system that's teaching you how to run the system first and be a human second and realizing that that is not a way that you are going to that you are going to be able to live your life. Again, I resonate with that going, hey, man, I can't be a teacher because teacher, you're running a, a, the teaching system first. Your human humanity is is a far second Christ. So I resonate that with, you know, with that so much. You're having to have the humility to go back to where you've been kicked out and to look all these people in the face at a time of life where it's even hard. I mean, doing that in your 20s, the humility to do that in your 20s, that's, that is such a hard thing to go through, but you refused to be the victim in that situation. You're getting these rejection letters. Like, I, I, I think we're best friends, Joe. I, I'm a huge, I am a huge fan. So I just, I wanted to say, like, I'm sitting here listening to this, um, but I'm, I love everything I'm hearing, man. So, okay. So, so what's, next 
at this point. I just want to hear more of the story. And, and I'll tell you, anyone who's um, making alternative schooling is my best friend before I meet them. I appreciate that. Because um, I was one of those kids. Yeah. Being being told, being told Doing terribly in school yep. and getting out in the real world and, and, and eventually doing quite well. Yep. I realize it has nothing to do with school. That's so right. I, I appreciate what you do as well. Awesome, man. Thank you for that. Um, so the glory of rock bottom when you're young is that now there's no plan B. That's right. You might as well do what you're passionate for because right. where are you going to go from here? Yep. And when you're young, the biggest thing you're worried about is being embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be more embarrassed. So from here on out, life is going to be gravy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no other place to go. It can only go up. Uh, it can only go up. Um, and I, at, at my minimum wage job, uh, which was not full-time, I saved up money to buy a bus ticket uh, from St. Louis to Oakland, and I spent two days on a bus with my computer and the novel I was working on with a jar of peanut butter, eating the peanut butter the whole time because I couldn't afford the vending machines on the way. Uh. I arrived in California, and I got a job as a babysitter, and I started working on these novels, and I started trying to figure out how to get published. Um, and... Just rejection, 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 rejection. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought you send the whole novel to the people and of course they don't read it. Um, and once, and I remember it was my 28th birthday and I was printing my fourth 1300 page novel uh, as a birthday present to myself. And I'm looking at it come out of the printer and I'm saying, nobody's gonna publish this. It's too long, it's too expensive. Um, I, I got to figure out how to do this. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was literally as that novel was coming out, I started thinking about another novel that I would structure as a movie. So you were, um, you were printing the fourth one out, 1300 pages. You're printing that out for your own birthday present, realizing through your studies that like, okay, this is going to be a harder sell. So you started planning, you were planning the next one already at that point. Yeah. So it's like, this is the type of novel that you publish when you've already got five bestsellers. When you're established. Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to take the financial risk on this frigging thing I spent three years working on. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was while it was coming out, I started conceiving, okay, how do you do this as a movie structure? How do you, how do you do the plot? What's the three X structure? How do I study that? Um, So I don't want to get too deeply into that, but I want to get back to the failures because I had a girlfriend at the time who was a musician, a very successful musician. And she said, you know, the way I did so great as a musician is I went to Juilliard and I was with other musicians. And you're all alone. You're just doing this by yourself. Yeah. You need to find other writers. So that's when I joined, um, I joined four writers groups. Uh, and I learned that the, that the only way to learn how to entertain people is a trial by fire. You got to get up in front of people and you got to read your stuff and you got to be humiliated. And then you got to be quiet while they criticize your life's work to your face. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I was realizing I was learning. Like when you're reading in a room and everybody's captivated, you know it. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they say. Yeah. And they're bored, you know it. Yep. Um, so I was realizing so I was working on this novel and I was every chapter, I was taking it to four writers' groups and getting feedback. How was uh, that feedback? And the feedback started negative. Okay. Very negative. And then I started learning that I would listen to what people say and I would, and I would try to alter it. And then I'd bring that chapter to a new writer's group. And it was only by failing and failing and failing. Suddenly I started learning how to entertain these, these people. 
So every chapter is entertaining when I read it aloud. And I start reading books like how to make a good script great. And I modeled the book after a blah, 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 you know. Yeah. So this time when I sent this book out, I had, I can tell a lot of stories about this, but I, uh, I had agents competing for it. Uh, the day after my 30th birthday, uh, uh, a major publisher called me. Um, it sold movie rights. Um, it, it had a, got a quarter million advance in, in paperback. Um, uh, it, was, it was eventually stolen and made into a blockbuster a few years ago and I had a lawsuit. It, it, it went well in the lawsuit. And all of a sudden, um, everyone's treating me like I'm smart and I must know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that shifts public perception, huh? Yeah. yeah. So um, th- what is this? This is, this is evolution. Yeah. It's trial and error. Yep. Uh, and, and so it's sort of like evolution created our complex brains and then it, our characters evolve the same way. You have to try lots of things and you have to fail in multiple ways until you discover for yourself the thing you're good at and you're never going to do it. Um, you're you're going to slowly discover what you're not that great at and you're slowly going to discover what you are great at until you become good at something. Yeah. Um, and so That's... you must acquaint yourself with failure. You, you got to know humiliation mm. as a friend when you're young and yes. you have to experience how painful that is. You have to realize deep in yourself, it's not so bad. I'm not dead. Man. I'm not dead. I, I, you know, and I'm not afraid and I can go for it again. Yeah. And I, I, I know how this feels now and I can take the risk again. That, that is, that is the hero's journey, right? We talk about that over and over. I'm sure you've at least looked at, at Campbell's work, you know, and, and especially integrating, you know, I would imagine integrating something into storylines at some point of your own, if not being just familiar with it. But that is what we, you know, we connect to the youth that we have here on campus. We connect to that story. We talk about that story of becoming self-aware and you become self-aware through those dragons and through having to battle and through failing and getting yourself back up and and figuring out who you are and what that what that genius is what that uh you know superpower is that you're going to be able to then go out and change the world with but you are never going to find that if you don't go through those 375 failures and i agree with you wholeheartedly figure that out when you are young and everybody's got a different perception of young i've got you know, um, uh, somebody right next to me that's that's 22 years old, you know, and I'm not going to say, I won't say her name, Allie, but uh, she's got, <laughs> right, she's 22, but in her mind, it's like, man, I've got to have, and I remember, I remember being that same thing at 22 going, oh my gosh, I don't have life figured out yet, and now I look back at, you know, now I'm 40, and 22 is is a baby, you know, and, and but you've got to go through, you've got to go through these failures, and that's what we want our kids to do now, and one of the biggest struggles for parents is allowing that to happen for their young person and allowing it to happen when consequences right now are minimal. There is no, you know, we're in this environment here. We're not grading them. We're not grading and we're not degrading them. And so we're just saying, look, take on this experience, take on this experience, take on this experience. And each time you're going to fall down and each time you're going to have to pick yourself up and you have to get a little better. Um, you know, but the hardest thing for parents is to watch them, you know, the kids go through that struggle portion, but those that'll back off and let them struggle and don't intervene too early and just 
realize that everything's going to be okay, they get to watch these young people blossom into these world-changing individuals. They get to have these revelations of self-awareness that you and I are talking about right now, and they get to have them at an early age. And imagine if we unleash that you know, uh, upon the world, uh, a whole group of young people who are already um, kind of at that point of awareness that you and I had to go through a whole lot of struggle and be a whole lot older to figure out, you know, I love this story, Joe. Yeah. And, and, and Joseph Campbell gave such a gift to the world. I'm mm-hmm. so glad mm-hmm. teaching to kids because you're right. I did learn a lot about writing by reading Joseph Campbell. Um, and, and the, the fact that there are these universal stories that go across cultures. Yeah. You got to ask yourself, why is this, these same stories have resonated for different people throughout yeah. history? Because it says something fundamental about yeah. human experience and the, yep. the, the hero's journey is always the same. You know, he talks about this, um, this, these rituals, mm-hmm. uh, New Guinea Highlanders, Aleuts, Eskimos, you know, they all have these similar rituals where the, the hero's journey is you have to get away from mommy. Yeah. And you have to go out and face the danger and then you have to get the Holy Grail and bring it back to the community. Yeah. Like, like you have to be brave and you have to bring something back. Yep. And they, they have these rituals where the, the, the moment where the kid becomes a, an adult um, and the, the, the men go out somewhere, we'll do it in the case of the son, not the daughter, because they're sort of different rituals. Sure. Um, and the men go out, they put on scary costumes and they come rushing into the, the, back into the village to take the boy away. And the boy runs to his mother and the mother makes a big show of tr- trying to pull him back. And the men pull him away from his mother. And then they take him out for a week and subject him to all sorts of trials where he has to be brave. He has to, you know, prove himself. And then when he comes back to the village, it's like, okay, now you're a man. Yeah. And now you have all responsibilities. They, 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 uh, so it's almost like yeah. the story acknowledges that mom doesn't want to let her child go. Right. The child doesn't want to go, but reality has to force you. And you have to have the courage to face it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then and you, I think that's that's a huge part of growing up. That's a huge part. And then you come back, but that's it. You come back grown up, right? I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Dennis Prager and uh, Patrick Bet David, who we just had on the show. And we got Dennis coming up in September. Um, and they were talking, you know, Dennis was talking about the choice to grow up. He's saying we have a lot of people who, you know, everybody gets older. And he said, but the choice to grow up and the choice to be an adult really can be made, you know, roughly at any time when you're going to start to say, look, I've got to get out of mom and dad's shadow and I've got to decide to be an adult. I've got to decide to be personally responsible. And, and we've lost sight of, you know, as much as I think certain things of, you know, tra- tradition in terms of uh, organizational tradition, I think can can be you know, is, is the death of, of so many great businesses, so many great ideas, so many, you know, uh, it's the death of thought traditions in the sense of a culture, um, like you're talking about. These rituals you were talking about are something that we have lost and we've lost sight of that. And so now there's this blurred, fuzzy line where it's like, ah, when does adulthood happen? Well, I don't know. Maybe when I, I'm not going to, you know, somebody said it was 30, so I'm going to stay home with mom and dad a little bit. We don't have this anymore that kind of, thrusts people, you know, into this uh, idea that, hey, now you're an adult, now you're personally responsible, and now you've, uh, you know, you're you're going to have to go take on the world, and, and you don't have any more excuses. We've lost that, and I think that's ultimately to everybody's detriment. You know, you're sitting here talking about this, reminded of, of uh, the Agogi, 
right? It's the that was the same kind of ritual for the Spartan young men, and and I'm and I'm not touting the Spartans as, you know, the the epitome of society, and there were obviously some savage moments there, but um, that concept, man, I think I think we're missing out by letting go of that, and I know um, that we struggle as a society. I know if I bring in a ritual tomorrow to parents across the country that even starts to resemble what you're talking about, regardless of the of the reality that, okay, look, there might not be any actual danger. The pushback is going to be the, the, no, the trauma, they'll be so scared, they'll be subject. We've got to take baby steps. We've got to wrap them up in bubble wrap a little longer, take some baby steps. We'll get them there. We'll get them there. And I think that's how we've, we have lost so many adults in this country. I think we're, I think we're losing that battle. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something very honest that's occurring to me right now. Uh, I had a best friend then um, who had graduated from college and uh, lived with his parents. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have parents I could live with. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was the oldest of six kids. Um, My parents weren't going to support me anymore once I was 21. Yeah. Uh, And they were so hard on me. Um, It it, it wasn't even like um, they had any problem with me. It's like, you're a grown up now. Yeah. We have these other ones to take care of. Uh, I'm having a hard time getting them through school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go figure it out. Yep. And I, I was, I was resentful uh, because my friend, um, his parents sort of welcomed me in. I, I could go to his house and have meals, um, uh, and eventually I would leave that place mm-hmm. uh, um, and go to California. But I'll tell you, um, my friend never really left that situation. Yep. Um, and he was an artist and he's never produced anything of value. Yeah. So it's not even, it wasn't like I had a character. I envied, um, him and, and resented that I couldn't, didn't have this home base I could go to. And I had to go to California and sleep on couches and, 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 and struggle with failure and resentment until I figured it out. Yeah. So it's like, the reality forces you to build your character. And, and how, now, I mean, how thankful like are you now? Yeah. How thankful are you now for that? I'm, I'm so thankful. And yeah. I, and I, it's humiliating that I sound like what all the old guys said to me. It's like, you don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> yeah. You don't like me now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kicking you out of my house. Yeah. yeah. Forcing you to fail. You're going to appreciate it when you're older. And yeah. they're right. I do. Yeah, I those moments of, you know, you're sitting there talking about eating peanut butter out of the jar. And like, I, I just, you know, I fondly now look back on those moments of, of being, you know, early 20s and going and buying, you know, trying to buy almost nothing at the grocery store. And then having them, you know, and the card doesn't work. And, and then I call the bank and realize I literally had two cents, not not you know, this isn't hyperbole. I had two cents in my bank account and it was like, Oh, you're buying nothing right now. And it's like, cool. And I had to do the walk of shame and go put everything back on the shelves. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I fondly look back now that I, I couldn't even tell you how long all I ate was tuna and ramen and canned beans. And sometimes if I was super fancy, I'd eat tuna with the canned beans, you know? And it's like, um, and I did it for, I did it for a long time and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for those times. So wow. thankful. Amazing. You know, I love hearing, I love hearing stories like that. Cause I think, 
you know, one of the and one of the questions that the youth had asked is is around the topic of of anxiety and and feeling overwhelmed. And I really think we have a generation that seems to be more anxious now. And that's with working. You know, I've worked with tens of thousands of youth at this point, and and um, so I I hope I'm not the the jaded you know old guy that's like, well, kids these days. Um, because I think I have a different, I think I have a more balanced perspective than that. But I, I, the reality is in these last few years, I do see that more. I do see more anxiety. And I think there's, you know, I don't think we can blame any one thing. I think it's, it's a multi-faceted uh, issue. But one of those issues I truly believe is that we are not allowing kids to struggle and, and to fail early on. And so they get a little taste of it when they're older and it's immediately, hey, mom, dad, help me out. And the parents are doing it. And, and I think we're doing a big disservice to our kids for that, you know. Anxiety is a gift. Yeah, man. Uh, and, and when you look at it that way, that's yeah. when it changes you. I wake up every morning with anxiety. Yeah. Uh, I wake up every morning saying, how the hell am I going to do about this problem? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to figure it out by noon. Yeah. Um, and, and guess what anxiety really is? Uh, it, it's, it's a legitimate fear in your nervous system telling you, uh, you might fail. You better get on this. You better figure this out. Uh, you got to call this guy and do this thing this you hate. You have to possibly humiliate yourself. And the anxiety is the same thing that's teeing you up f- for the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, look, uh, it's 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 learning to 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 that your anxiety is a tool that you can use to forge discipline. So, Gia Christopher, who introduced us, yep. uh, she will tell you I, I was issued last week this challenge uh, by Chris Roofer, a friend of yours. Yep. Uh, who supports the Seasteading Institute. Yep. So I got a million things going on. Um, and we're, we're achieving things, and, I, and I'm trying to get a flag for Seasteads, and we'll get into that in a moment. But he just issues this challenge, uh, raise 50K in one week, and I'll match it. Love it. Um, you you want to talk about anxiety. Yeah. This is during an economic crisis and a pandemic. <laughs> and I'm like, one week? Yeah. One week. Um, I'm like, I don't have time. I got all these things to do. Well, what could be more important to that? Um, so I had, it was a week of anxiety um, where f- f- six, you know, I'm not going to get into all the things I was trying to do. Yeah. The last day uh, we were halfway there. And I'm like, I'm going to disappoint Chris Roofer and the Seasteading Institute's going to go down the drain because we're not able to raise any money. Um, so I, I pulled some more ideas out of my butt and made some more arm twisting calls and scrambled around some more. And we ended up exceeding our goal by 30 to 50%. I love uh, that. So we, we did the last 75% on the last day. Wow. And I got to, I got to go back to Roofer. And go, here you go. They, we did it. Yeah. Now, now you can match it. And so now it's doubled. I love it. I love it. So in the, in the word what did the anxiety do? Discipline. You dis you that 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 was the word that she used right there. Discipline. We say all the time, discipline equals freedom. The discipline to take the action that you a lot of times don't want to take is ultimately what's going to provide you the freedom that you want. Yeah, and the there was both. So my anxiety Mm -hmm. drove me to achieve, and then immediately after I achieved, and I called Chris Roofer and announced to him what we had accomplished Mm -hmm. that we had far exceeded his goal. Uh, the next, you know, and then he, then I say, okay, send me that check. Um, 
and he puts the check in the mail. Then I check in Monday with my awesome uh, development director yeah. and said, oh, there was a, there's a software glitch. Uh, actually, we didn't exceed it by that much. We only exceeded it by a small amount and you gave Rufa the wrong number and now he sent you a check based on something that isn't true. Uh, so now I got to call up call this again. guy. And now I'm back in, I completely screwed up. <laughs> and I have to tell him. Yeah. I have to tell him, yeah. look, I gave you the wrong number. Here's why. You only gave me a week. I wanted to get back to you on the weekend. I'm sorry if you want me to rip up the check and then you can write another one or if you're mad and you don't want to do it anymore because I screwed up. You know, I had to do that. Yeah. And now here's the thing. If I hadn't been used to um, failing, embarrassing myself, asking for forgiveness, people holding me to account, I might have been that person of low character mm -hmm. and said, you know what? He's already sent the check. Yep. Just, just keep it under the rug. And no one will ever know the difference. And then we'll more than double the small number. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the cowardice. Yep. Um, so that's what I'm trying to, I, I feel like there are young people in the audience and that's what I'm yep. trying to yep. convey to them. The anxiety doesn't go away. You learn how to, how to cope with it. That's right. You learn how to cope with it. You learn how to move forward. In you learn how to use it. Yep. It's you're right. Is it doesn't go away. There's always a situation. If you're doing anything, you know, and I'm I'm not going to use the word always, I guess, because if you're doing work that matters, right? If you are doing something, you're actually trying to be productive. You're actually trying to create. You're actually trying to move forward. You're actually trying to, uh, you know, do right by yourself, do right by humanity, do right by the people in your life. You're gonna you're gonna come up against something that is going to be uncomfortable. Um, and, but like you said, you know, you said anxiety is, is a gift and that's, that's it. Being uncomfortable is a gift. It is a gift because anytime you push past that, you get to put a cookie back in the cookie jar of self-confidence that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to come across <laughs> it again, but I can look back and go, look, man, I've already done this 200 times. I've already had to make this awkward phone call. I've already had to do this awkward thing. I've already had to make an ass out of myself at some point. So what's another one, you know? And, and then usually what you see, which... I'm sure you experience with Chris as well. Um, one of my favorite, another one of my favorite humans on the planet. You know, I'm sure what you experienced too is um, it, it probably wasn't as as bad afterwards. You were like, okay, it went better than it went better than I could have because most people are good people, and Chris is definitely good people. So it probably was a better thing, and, and you were glad that you made that phone call. Yeah, it, it, it turned out the best possible way, which is like, well, you screwed up. Thanks for letting me know. We'll keep this in mind for next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. That sounds about right. He, sounds... he actually made a joke. He said, you, you owe me, you know, this, this many grand for in book consultation. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right, man. Uh, yeah. He's a, uh, he's a super good guy. So talk about this Seasteading Institute here. Talk about the, and, and not just what I, I just want to talk about the concept in general, because as I've been turned on to, uh, frankly, I did not. I did not know this was a thing until Gia introduced me. And this was like months ago. She's, and I don't remember what we were doing. I think it was at one of our exhibitions or something. And she said, hey, um, there's only two people. I don't remember exactly what she said. She said something around there's only two people that I really enjoy listening to talk from the stage or something to that effect. And she says, I love listening to you, especially when you're talking about education. And she said, I love listening to Joe Quirk because he's talking about seasteading. And I said, oh, that's awesome. Who is that? And what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, you don't know about it. She's like, here, you got to know. So she sent me some things. And and again, I've just been absolutely fascinated with this. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, she's the same same story with you. I, awesome. I didn't know who you were. She's a matchmaker, I guess. She is, man. Uh, um, 
so, you know, but like, so jump ahead in the life story, skip yeah. over the part where, okay, now you're a successful novelist and everyone's telling you you're, you're, you're smart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, you go up that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. um, where you, where you, you, you find anxiety and triumph for tools that can make the world a better place. Eventually I'm in the place like, I'm going to tell another story and it's going to be a book. What difference does it make? Uh, I was very influenced by Khalid Hosseini, who wrote The Kite Runner, uh, became a praised writer, and then he parlayed that into the Khalid Hosseini Foundation, founded by him and his wife, Roya, and started using the story to focus attention on these people he cares about. And I'm like, okay, this is bigger than just writing a book. He's Mm -hmm. turning it into something. So the dragons never stop. You just get bigger and face bigger dragons. So the next dragon I took on was um, grokking what's so important about seasteading. Hmm. So the concept of seasteading is homesteading the high sea. Um, When you realize that if you basically combine the technology of oil rigs with cruise ships, you could have permanent cities on the sea. Since no country claims half the world's surface, you, if you had a permanently floating island out there, it would essentially be a startup country. Sovereign nation. A, a, a sovereign nation. It's, it's complicated legally. Yeah. But, um, and so I think of it as a Silicon Valley sensibility to the problem of solving sh- crappy governance. Mm-hmm. Right? So our nation states are just failing. Uh, um, and I, I always use Steve Wozniak as an example. Yeah. So he worked for Hewlett Packard. He loved Hewlett Packard. He was loyal to Hewlett Packard. He designed the personal computer and he presented it to Hewlett Packard five times, five different versions, all five times. They said, no, we're not doing this. Why would people want a personal computer? Name me one way this would serve anyone. Yeah. We're not. So he wanted to do this through Hewlett Packard but he had to break away and, 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 and that his designs became the initial Apple computer. And if he hadn't broken away and partnered with Steve jobs and made that company, we wouldn't have right. uh, the apples we have now. Right. Um, so he couldn't change the system of Hewlett Packard from within. He had to break away and try something new. So the governments today, they're Hewlett Packard. They're old, they're crusty. They, they don't update. So if Silicon Valley loves startup companies, tell them, suppose you could have a startup society. Uh, start over with your rules, uh, complete freedom, uh, blockchain governance, smart contract, contracts, all these things you guys want. Um, yeah, they love that. Now, the, the thing that got me is I keep referencing uh, evolution. Yeah. Right? So to me, evolution is the most powerful force in everything. It, variation of forms selection of the things that work, the ones that don't work go away. Um, it's responsible for life itself. It's, it's, um, it's, it's how, where our technologies come from, lots of ideas proliferating, the bad ones that don't work go away, the good ones keep mating until we end up with all this marvelous technology around this, this decentralized variation and selection that creates design over time. No one knows how to make a pencil, um, but lots of people working together all over the world produce a pencil. Right. So when I realized that if you're floating, if you don't found civilization on land, but you found civilization on liquid, 
Then you have a floating Venice, and if different modules can detach and move around, and you can link up with the people you want, and then you can go found another society over here, and if you're mobile and you float, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. I said, Ben, this, this would not be a monopoly on governance based on military control of a continent. This would be a market of governance providers uh, seeking to, find, to provide excellent governance to people who choose it. It would be variation in governance providers and selection by governance customers. So this, in principle, would unleash evolution itself in governance, mm -hmm. uh, which means that what would emerge is, in principle, unimaginable, right? Now, Silicon Valley has lots of amazing ideas with regard to AI, and I'm part of the futurist community, and I listen to it all, but I only understand the ideas. I don't understand the mechanism. Yeah. With seasteading, I get the mechanism, like... Oil platforms that are mobile and yeah. can detach and move around where people have control over it. Yeah. Moving around in the water. I get it. I, I'm like, I think this could work. I think humanity, everyone's talking about going to Mars. We're going to go to the oceans long before we go to Mars. Yeah. Uh, two thirds of the planet uh, is ocean. Right. And, we, and we don't even look at it yet. And that the problem with governance is that it's a monopoly. Um, it, it's a violent monopoly and it's a monopoly where you can't go anywhere else. Yeah. So the worst people climb to the top. We, we know from economics that monopolies are always good for the people who control the, the monopoly and terrible for the consumer right. or the customer. And we are customers who want good rules and we should be allowed to have choices. So if you provide not the iPod, but the C pod, yeah. we can tell you about in a moment, which is going to be for sale soon. Uh, then people can go out on the sea, they can peacefully try new ideas. Either people choose it and move to it, and it grows and it sets an example that's possibly so profound that it can change the old world as much as Hong Kong changed China. Yeah. Or, you know, you have something like a floating cruise ship and people go and they hate it and then they leave. Yeah. Or they detach and go somewhere else. Yeah. Then the people, the business people who provide that governance, um, uh, go out of business and then people learn from their mistakes and they try something else. And it's not based on fighting. It's right. based on choice and it's based on a diversity of different governance forms that we're choosing among just like any other market. The freest of the freest of the free markets, the, the, the truest, the truest way to do that. How, so is there a certain, like, is there a certain distance and it, and pardon the ignorance and, and part of it is, some of it is slightly rhetorical because I've been able to look into it a little bit. But so, I mean, is there a, a distance that you've got to go off of shore? Is there, are there particular parts? Like, I mean, I know you said getting into the legality of everything, it gets, it gets kind of funky, can get complicated, but, um, you know, in order to achieve this sovereignty, is there a specific distance from a shore that you've got to go? What is that? What does that look like? What are kind of the, the high level details of that? Yes. And I started completely ignorant as well. Yeah. I only understood what I just told you. Sure. And then I had to learn all this stuff. So that was sure. the drag I had to face. Um, so basically 12 miles offshore, a country has the same sovereignty that it does uh, on land. Gotcha. So being 11 miles offshore is basically the same. What's called international waters starts at about 12 miles. And then there's a different set of rules. Uh, 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 24 miles out is the contiguous zone. 
Um, and more important for our purposes is 200 miles out is the, spe is the uh, exclusive economic zone. So basically more than 12 miles out, the country has rights over things like mining the floor, okay. um, um, getting the fish. It's basically, it has rights over natural resources. Okay. Uh, as you get 12 miles out, you have a considerable amount of freedom under international law. And once you're 200 miles out, you could conceivably claim complete sovereignty. Though sovereignty only comes in uh, recognition with other um, countries. Gotcha. So we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could get that maybe in 20 years. What we want to get in the next year is a form of sovereignty you could have uh, one foot offshore. Yeah. Justify a flag of convenience. Mm. So I live in San Francisco. Almost every week, cruise ships pull up. Yep. And they're flagged in, say, the Bahamas or Panama. And as long as the workers on the ship don't step off the ship, they are under Panamanian labor law. Mm. So it's a little piece of floating sovereignty that comes right up to your country. Yep. Um, and Panama is pretty far away from yeah. San Francisco. They have no power to enforce laws on the ship. So a cruise ship is in principle a little piece of floating sovereignty. Right. Even though technically the country is franchising out its sovereignty yeah. for a fee. So a lot of countries make a lot of money franchising out their sovereignty. So what if a cruise ship never docked? Um, well, we have <clears throat> the legal uh, legitimacy of this has gone right to the edge of seasteading. There is a cruise ship called The World, which is flagged in Panama. And it's the only ship in the world that is not for vacationers, but for permanent residents. Really? So people live on this thing. Yes. And it sails the world and it's flagged as a cruise ship. And imagine, you know, you, 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 you wake up in the morning, you're in Istanbul. You wake up the next morning, you're in Monte Carlo. Um, it's for rich people. Yeah. So it's too expensive. Yeah. So legally we're right there. Like if I can petition these flagging registries around the world and say, a seastead, which we have ready to go, and I'll tell you about ocean builders in a moment, it's not a, a, an oil platform, so it doesn't have those rules. It's not a cruise ship, so it yeah. doesn't have those rules. Yeah. If it's floating permanently at sea, can we get a flag with new rules specifically designed for this new technology that would give people freedom to innovate in governance um, and attract entrepreneurs and attract investors and attract medical entrepreneurs uh, who are already interested, you know, mm -hmm. medical innovation. Imagine a floating hospital just offshore providing faster, better, cheaper care. Yeah. 12 miles out, which is a 20 minute ferry right away. Right. So startups competing with these old crusty governments. And uh, I think with the, um, the shipping has collapsed economically. Yeah. Cruise ships um, are probably at 5% of their value now and being sold. People aren't buying them and cruise ships are being scrapped. So this is where the Seastating Institute is swooping in and saying, you know, both ocean builders and the Seastating Institute are doing a parallel swoop. Ocean builders have designed the Sea Pod, okay. 
so challenge one with this is how do you make this affordable to the average middle class family? Yeah. Uh, how do we make how do we get GIA one of these? Yeah. That I call I call this the, the, the GIA goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how do we get Joe and Gia to move into one yeah, of these right? things? Well, yeah. You gotta make it you gotta make it fun to live on, safe, beautiful, and cheaper than the average American home. Yeah. For, I mean this is the life. sustainability. Right. And the self-sustainability has got to come into play. And, and yep. So seasteading is a way to solve, to, to bring sustainability to economic restoration yeah. and to bring politically fighting to politically creating. So ocean builders has designed what they call the C pod uh, modeled very uh, explicitly after the iPod, which is this beautiful Jetsons looking thing that floats like a wine bottle. So imagine like a, a, a full wine bottle that's yeah. very heavy at the bottom. Yeah. And then you can float this in the water. So only like the upper yep. fifth of it is above the water. Right. And you can put a, like a, a tiny little house on top of that wine bottle for a mouse. And if the bottom of the wine bottle is heavy enough, you could have waves going on the neck of the bottle and the wine bottle remains completely still and it isn't affected by the waves. So you're seasick free. Oh, speaking my and, language. Yeah, Buckminster Fuller designed this, but but people always imagine it these giant billion dollar cities. Yeah. Ocean builders have cracked the problem of making it uh available for uh less than two hundred thousand dollars. And it, that's uh, without the bells and whistles. And best of all, so that so now you could conceivably going around the equator is a band a thousand miles wide of hurricane-free, low-wave, tropical seas. Most of it is in international waters. You could just cover the world with these little sea pods that normal people, fanatics like us who want freedom, could buy and live out there uh, and then establish their own little societies in international waters. And the question is, where do they let stand legally? Right. And if we can get um, a legitimate flag of convenience, as they're called, from an open registry, then they could be a new kind of a new kind of thing. They could have they could be governance providers on the water. And here's how it solves the sustainability problem. Sustainability, that's totally 20th century. Now we're into economic restoration. Yeah. Okay. You can't build one of these without increasing the amount of life on the ocean and without sequestering carbon. Um, there are oil rigs that are decommissioned that the oil companies want to tear apart that environmentalists petition them and say, no, there's all sorts of life floating on these things. Now turtles have made it their homes. Uh, fishermen get their, um, get most of their catch from fishing near this thing. Coral is growing on it. If you tear it up, down and you're going to destroy this ecosystem leave the unused oil rig where it is if you like i'm in a house right now and we built this house in order to build this foundation we had to destroy the life right here right right if you float a foundation on water you provide this home anything that's solid on the ocean becomes something that muscles attach to um, and then fish move in and it happens very fast they're desperate for something solid they can build homes on 
Um, and then it slowly gets encased in, in coral and ocean builders have developed a system by which what they call coral crete will grow very fast on the sea pod. So if you're in the underwater room and you're looking out the window at your aquarium coral garden growing on your sea pod with tropical fish, um, the fish are basically looking at you, you're the one in the zoo. And they're not going anywhere because the best place for them to be is right there. So you have your environmentally restorative sea garden and sea farm that is coral makes itself by drawing carbonic acid uh, out, of the, out of the water. So every sea pod you build increases the amount of plant life, it increases the amount of fish, it increases the amount of mussels, clams, all this edible stuff. It doesn't require fresh water, it doesn't require soil. It's all edible and it absorbs uh, uh, carbonic acid uh, from the ocean to create itself. So the more we build, the better it is for the ocean. Dude, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. So why, it, it, to me, this is one, so, you know, if I find, I have an obsessive personality um, for better or for worse. And so when I find something that I, I think matters and, and uh, you know, especially matters to humanity, like I will, I will dive as deep down that rabbit hole as I can go. And I already feel like this is going to be one of those things for me. So I'm kind of mad at you about that a little bit because I don't have a ton of time, but also I'm so excited about this. So, so why do, for, I guess, big, big question, why do more people not know about this? And then where, what, like what's next? Like, what are you specifically trying to make happen next in order to perpetuate this idea? Like, what are you doing on a daily basis to to get the word out and start making uh, progressive steps here? So the next step is for ocean builders to build one and show people what it looks like. Yeah. I think that will be the game changer. Yeah. And that's your job. Yeah. My job is to provide the legal ecosystem for these things to flourish. And the thing I'm focused on now is uh, negotiating with these flagging registries that are in a bad economic place and saying, look, we could, we could help you guys out. Yeah. People, the fact that governments are doing badly is good for seasteading because mm -hmm. people want alternatives. Yep. And I'll tell you, you're, you're, uh, I don't think you uh, need to feel like you missed out. But, you know, G has probably told you about Michael Strong. Oh, um, I know Michael. Educator. Yeah. I know Michael. I've, yeah, I've met I'm, Michael and I have been connected for a few years and, and, um, Michael and his wife and, uh, two other, uh, people he's connected with, uh, came down and, and, uh, got to spend a day with us here at Acton Placer last year too. Michael's a great guy. Yeah. Would you want to put a school on one of these floating societies? Would My you want to gracious. take a, a class trip out there and, and learn about environmentally restorative societies and right. how they work? Uh, nice. This, this was, this is being planned, uh, in Panama where this is done. All these things are being planned. Um, so why don't more people know about this? Why is everyone talking about Mars? Yeah. They're skipping planet ocean, which is yeah. the real name for this planet. Yeah. Any, if you're on Mars and you look yeah. back at this planet, you're not going to see green and yeah, brown right. dirt. You're going to see blue. You're right. going to see this planet. And, and we're skipping it. Uh, and it's much cheaper to go to the oceans. It helps us solve problems Absolutely. right away. And uh, I can tell you what the problem was. And, and here's the dragon I faced. Once I 
finished, once I started, I faced bigger and bigger dragons in my hero story as I got older. So when I decided this was important, if I Google seasteading, it's a nightmare in the press. Uh, the story is entirely evil billionaires right. want to say screw you to the world right. and throw their trash in the ocean and all they care about themselves. Um, hoo hoo ha 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 ha, look, right. it's not yeah. evil. <laughs> um, and so it, it's like, it's one thing to tell a story. It's another thing to replace the bad story with a bigger, better, more inspiring story. Right. I had never done that before. Um, so that was what I had to face. Yeah. Uh, and I had to f face every time I'm in an interview like this. You want to know why I only do interviews like this now. I'll have a conversation like this with someone from the mainstream, what I call the lamestream media. Yep. They'll throw out 95% of this and take the part where I use foul language or yep. something. And then they'll quote that. Yep. Absolutely. Um, There's and so it becomes like, how do you get around this, you know, media working with people's perceptions? Yeah. And yeah. The, um, the, so the, I, I've, I've been doing that for a few years now. Uh, and the way things happen is not necessarily to convince a lot of people, it's to inspire the key visionaries who are going to make it happen. Right. And that is Chad, Nadia, Rudy, Grant, yeah. <laughs> the people at Ocean Builders that are yeah. risking themselves and, putting their own money into making this because yeah. they see how this can change the world. It's the pioneers. And then you've been talking about stories and, and the public perception and, and how you always, you know, when you were bringing stories like this, to mainstream media, then there it's, there's always an avenue of, well, if this doesn't fit the main narrative, doesn't fit the main agenda, then, then we're going to just change the concept of the story. But the beauty is behind these pioneers. Like you said, once somebody gets out there, and once there is, you know, the quote unquote proof of concept, so to speak, then all of a sudden the story changes. You can't, um, you know, w when you've got that story that just plays out for all the world to see, it's, a, it's much harder to perpetuate an agenda at, at that point. It's that kind of story that's going to just transform everything and, and just exacerbate the, the and proliferate the growth of this. So and I appreciate you keep using the word story. Because, you know, uh, Peter Thiel was one of the co-founders of the Institute. Yeah. And the, the legend is he always asked people, you know, what do you, what do you believe that, you know, that, that what do most people believe that you think is wrong? Uh, and, I, and I fantasized about saying to him, well, what do you believe, Peter? Which is that ideas change the world. Yes. And I say ideas don't change the world. Yeah, Stories right. change the world. Stories do it. That's right. Yep. I love that. And you know, it's funny. So that's one, that's literally one of the, it's my favorite question that the youth gave us in this entire pod. And it's been interesting as we've been, we've been rocking all of these kind of questions out just through conversation and stuff too. But that is one of my favorite questions is what is a piece of common knowledge that you absolutely disagree with? Everybody sees this as the reality, but you think that's, that's incorrect. And I could not agree with you more. One of our recent guests, Jeff Sandifer, who, who he and his wife, you know, started, this Acton movement in general. Um, that is one of the things that he brought to my attention years ago. And I, and I fully believe that. And I fully agree with that. It's not, it's not the idea. It's the story. The story is what changes it because the story required some action to take place. And the story is far more inspiring to people than the idea. It makes it seem tangible. Um, you know, because 
they can they can look back on that and then that's what they're going to tell they're not going to just share the idea they're going to share that story stories are again it's one of those um this a it's a, a distinct part of the human experience kind of thing yes you know is storytelling that's something that's trans it, it goes across any culture it goes across um, any generation you know is the concept of telling stories i, I love that yeah stories engage the entire nervous mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. like we we think our conversion moments come when we understand an idea but it's but it's not true the yeah. conversion moments come when we experience an idea and then we viscerally have a catharsis in a story uh, and then you come away with an idea that changed you and you think it's about an idea mm -hmm. and, and i really learned this when I, i've worked with people writing science fiction novels mm -hmm. And I actually tried to co-write a science fiction novel with a guy. And what they think they love about science fiction novels are the ideas. Um, and I'm like, man, there's a reason people read, teenagers read J.K. Rowling, they don't read Immanuel Kant. Right. Right? Right. Um, the story is happening at an unconscious level. It's, it's an experience you're having, and it's setting the... The, the, it's setting your parasympathetic nervous system to have an experience so that when the idea comes to you, you have it as a catharsis and your consciousness turns on. And then afterwards, you're thinking about what you loved about it and you're looking back at this idea. But the, the idea is not what caused you to be unable to put this story down. Mm -hmm. It's your empathy and, and experiencing uh, someone else's experience through a story. Yep. Yep. And that's why people tell stories everywhere. Um, and so once people have the story of even evil billionaires on the ocean, you need to tell a bigger, better, more inspiring story yeah. to defeat them. That's you can't exactly. argue against it with ideas. Man, that's, at, you know, such a parallel to what we've, you know, uh, we'll have parents come in and, uh, you know, and I know this is the experience of Acton owners around the world too. And the idea of look, traditional education needs to change the idea of, uh, you know, there's a system that's either broken, depending on how you want to look at it, this, the traditional system's either broken or it's outdated or it's working perfectly as intended, whatever that idea is, everybody comes with that same idea and, and they're on board with something different, but there's, you know, there's a fear and some of them will devolve back into that fear, especially as their kids are, are battling those dragons and they start to go back and go, okay, maybe it'd be better for them if I just pull them out and have somebody just tell them what to do and they can just regurgitate because at least they'll feel safe and they devolve back into this. And what we continuously go back to is not reiterating the idea because everybody already agrees with that. We go back and reiterate the stories. We go back and reiterate the stories of people who have uh, decided not to, to come back. And then all of a sudden the world, you know, they go back to that traditional ad and all of a sudden the world has been open because they have um, stuck this out. We go back to those stories with the parents. We go back to those stories with each one of our young heroes. And that's what gives people you know, the, the courage, we've seen that tangibly. It's what gives people the courage to continue to go. And the beauty of that is, as that continues and that perpetuates, you've got more and more people who come out and just give us more and more stories to go back to use. And, and uh, you know, it's a beautiful, it is a beautiful thing. And that's what's creating, uh, you know, gone from creating just a couple of local, you know, local small schools to what now is a global movement um, that has no signs of, of slowing down, you know, and I think that this idea to me, uh, sounds like something that's going to create a number of stories. That's also going to create a movement that is literally going to go forward and change things for so many people, man. So exciting. I, I hope you're right. Cause 
because seasteading started as an idea mm-hmm. and then the press told the story mm-hmm. and then i decided the idea was wonderful uh and then people started to not like me because everyone knew seasteading was evil mm-hmm. and i said you know what L- let me write the book i'm a book writer i, I could explain it and yeah. so I, started, I managed to simon and schuster gave a big advance the most prestigious publisher in yep. america and that's the worst thing that could have happened because then i immediately said oh no how am i going to do this i don't know about marine <laughs> technology i don't know about law i'm not an economist yeah i don't know about algae i don't yeah. know about speed. i don't i'm not qualified to write this book um and then i had to realize it's it's not an idea it's a story and it's a it's not about me it's about the people trying to do it right so make it about them let them tell explain their reasons why they're doing it and tell stories about why they're trying to seastead and and that really changed the game instead of arguing about ideas telling the story of a diverse diverse likable people from different parts of the political spectrum um which doesn't exist all trying to do seasteading from their different angles right and then that's that's how you do it you tell their stories so good. So before we get to, before we get to to wrapping up of where people need you know to go to to hear these stories, to find these stories, to see the work you're doing, and and to learn more. If you've got, and this is kind of the last kind of the last question that we didn't necessarily touch on. I'm interested to see what you say with this too, because uh, I mean you are a prolific, uh, you're a prolific writer. You've mentioned some great names that obviously have influenced you as well. Um, if you got word hey joe this is this is it man today is today is your last day uh tomorrow you're gonna be we're gonna be putting you in the ground bud and and you're gonna have that headstone and on your headstone all the great ideas you've had all the great stories that you've written stories you've shared stories you've been a part of you only have one thing you get to write on that headstone this is your legacy quote whether it's yours or somebody else's what would you put on there You're not going to like it, but I'll be dead. So it won't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I like that attitude. I'll tell you that. I appreciate that. What would it be? You're not special till strangers decide you're special. Oh man. I like that. <laughs> I, I don't just like, I love that. Uh, because the people who love you are blinded by caring about you mm-hmm. and, and don't know you're providing value in the world. Yep. Until yep. people who don't care about you say, Hey, that changed something. You're changing something for me. I'll pay you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll treat you with respect. I'll, I'll give you attention. Um, so that's, so that's good. Big is going out there and serving strangers such that they decide you're special, not your mom. So good, man. So good. So fair. One of our recent guests, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, I just, I want to be the person that has the most people ever at his funeral. Um, same kind of concept, you know, just being able to help more people than you even have any idea you ever able to help. So I absolutely love that. Joe, man, this is so, so good. Um, and you and I are going to need to connect more, uh, offline as well. And I love that you're here in Northern California. We'd love to have you out to campus sometime, uh, as well. And just to, just to be able to shake your hand and thank you for all the work you're doing as well, man. So, um, where can people go to, to, uh, hear more about what's going on and get involved, uh, with what's going on? Where would you send people? If you want to be inspired by the big picture and learn more, go to seasteading.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's almost everything you would need there. 
uh, videos explaining different concepts. Uh, my book is available there. Yep. If you want to get involved with the first seasteading community or buy the sea pods and live in Panama, uh, go to Ocean Builders. Mm. Um, they're, uh, they got a factory in Panama right now with the biggest 3D printer in Central America. And they're, they're working on these things now. They, they've built uh, smaller versions and they're testing them in the water, you know, third scale models. Um, and it's, it's very exciting. And they're going to do a, um, uh, an incubation. They're going to host an incubator down there together with the Seasteading Institute. First, uh, say, eight or ten apostles. First, you know, the, the people that want to yeah. get in on the community can go down there. And it's a tech incubator. So you can help them solve problems. But, uh, yeah, if you want to be inspired, check out my, I made a short video series of the book called The Eight Great Moral Imperatives of Seasteading, where I talk about each of these aquapreneurs featured in the book. It's about five, six minutes each video. And it gives you an overview of what people are trying to do and why they're doing it. And then, uh, then you just look for more stuff on the website. There's a lot of stuff featured on the homepage. So uh, good. So and, and good. If you, want to, if you want to read a great story, get the, get the book. Uh, Joe, man, uh, honestly, one of my favorite, one of my favorite conversations. I knew, I knew I was going to enjoy talking to you. I knew, like I said, I knew we were going to connect on, on a number of levels, but, um, you know, you've given me kind of a, a new perspective, something else I need to dive far into. Um, and I know I will spend an inordinate amount of time. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize to my wife right now because I will spend an inordinate amount of time looking into this, but, um, I'm inspired by the work you are doing, my friend. I really do want to get you out here and, and, uh, take you out to lunch and would love to show you around campus and, and we can chat, man. And thank you for taking the time today. Yeah. I, I would love to learn more about what you do. Uh, you know, a friend of Gia's is a friend of mine. Agreed. Uh, and, and, you know, I wish I went to a school like yours when I was a kid. Thank you, man. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Appreciate that greatly. And like you said, you know, doing this so we can have an infinite impact of, you know, and, and not just the people that love us, but the strangers too, that, that, that we're able to impact. And that's how we can, we can get to that special place, man. So thank you again for taking the time to the show. Great spending time with you, man. Now you got something to dive into as well. Go check out Joe's work. Check out the Seasteading Institute. And uh, please feel free to share this episode. Share your thoughts. I uh, would love to hear how you guys are digging everything. If you got any ideas of guests you'd like to hear, please feel free to reach out uh, and see if we can put some people on the list as well. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sharing. And we will catch you next time.